Now, before you stand, um, I want to introduce kind of what's going to happen this morning. So every year on the first Sunday in June, we celebrate um, anniversaries or times to look back and to look forward. So we look back on everything that God has accomplished among us. We thank God for his work in our city, his work in our own hearts. And, and then we look forward to see what he wants to do among us. And we see a lot of exciting things on the horizon. In about a month, we're going to send a team to Norman to plant Hope Community Church, to God willing reach thousands of people who don't know Jesus, that they might come to the light of the knowledge of Christ. We hope to see kids in our, in our city educated in ways that are holistic, centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to see people continue to experience the healing love of Christ in our city. So as we've been praying about what we should study on this special moment, on this, this morning, the church in Antioch, which is exposed in the book of Acts, continue to come to our mind. So you'll see printed in your bulletin four passages, all from the book of Acts, all dealing with the church of Antioch. So we're going to be focusing on that church this morning, and we pray that God would speak to us through these passages as we look deeply into them this morning. So I'm going to invite Reed Hebert, one of our pastors, to come up, and we'll read these texts. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians." Acts 13, 1 through 4. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, They laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Acts 14, 24 through 28. Then they passed by through Poseidon and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Persia, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commanded to the, commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church there, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. 
and they remained no little time with the disciples. Acts 15, 30-33 and 35. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of God. Well, as Chauncey mentioned a moment ago, as he and I have spent some time praying and asking God as we're taking this this Sunday to look back and look forward what it is from the scripture that that we need to turn our attention to. This series of passages from Antioch has come to our minds, and I think there's a lot that we can learn um, and be encouraged by from from these texts. Before I jump into those passages, though, I do want to share one other verse that I have on my heart for us this morning, um, particularly in relation to how we can think about the future of our congregation in the light of God's faithfulness in the past. And this is a text from Isaiah chapter 26, verse, it's verse 12. And those of you who know the book of Isaiah well or who are with us as we spend about a year preaching from Isaiah um, will remember that um, Isaiah is not living during an exciting, encouraging time in the history of Israel. On the contrary, he's living through the midst of sin and rebellion by God's people and consequent discipline from the Lord. And yet, there are incredible passages of hope in the midst of all that. And here's one of these. Isaiah 26, verse 12 says this. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. Now, that's a statement for the future That's a statement of of confidence. God, you will ordain peace. You will ordain shalom for us. I am absolutely 100% convinced, says Isaiah the prophet, that God's future for his people is a good future, a time of blessing and wholeness and flourishing and peace. Now, how can he say something so confident in the midst of a situation where he's the prophet of God and there's only like five disciples or something like that listening to him? The people of God are in total rebellion and he knows that discipline is coming. Well, but the basis for his confidence is not the way things are going. The basis for his confidence is the character of God as displayed throughout the history of God's relations with his people. So the second half of the verse says this for you have indeed done for us all our works. Oh, Lord, you will ordain peace for us. I'm confident for the future. Why? Because in the past, you have indeed done for us all our works. In other words, he says, I can look back over the history of all your dealings with your people, God. And time and time again, you have been gracious to us. You have protected to us. You have forgiven us. You have defended us. And whenever we did anything good, it was really you who did for us all our works. So you get the credit, you get the glory, and because of your grace and faithfulness in the past, we can look to the future with confidence. Now, that verse has been an encouragement to me uh, for a long time, especially since we preached on Isaiah 26 
about a year and a half ago. And I think it's so, so encouraging this morning as I reflect back on the last seven years. Listen, we came to Oklahoma City being a small number of not very impressive people. And we're still in that category, I would say. Ordinary people, totally dependent upon the grace of God. But we were a much smaller number of them then. And all that we had was a incredible burden for the pain and the hurt and the lostness of people in this part of the city. And Jesus and eight friends and some Bibles. That's all that we had. And we just began to pray and pray and pray and pray. And after spending months praying and then moving into South Oklahoma City to the specific apartment complexes and neighborhoods where we sensed the spirit of God was leading us. We just saw incredible grace of God and we saw conversions, people trusting in Jesus Christ um, who were living in sin, their lives being changed, discipleship relationships being formed. Many of those people are now leaders in our congregation who did not know God when we moved here a few years ago. And slowly but surely in glorious ways, uh, disciples have been multiplying and the kingdom of God has been advancing in this place. And now we can look back and say, without any shadow of the doubt, we don't deserve any of the credit for any of that. Indeed, the Lord has done for us all our works. And because it has been a gracious God who has been faithful to us in the past, I have great confidence. I'm not saying it's going to be easy or prosperous. I don't know what the near future or the medium term holds for us. But what I'm saying is I can say with absolute confidence, God will ordain shalom for his people. He will ordain peace for us. Why? Because his graciousness has been tested and proved throughout the history of the church, throughout the Bible and in our own experience. So today we have strong reasons to be confident. With that in mind, I want to ask you to bow your head one more time and let's just pray that as God continues to pour out grace on us, that he'll use his word this morning to equip us for what lies ahead. O oh Lord, our God, holy God, you are our teacher. And I pray that through the scripture and the ministry of the Holy Spirit this morning, you would make us mature disciples of Jesus. You would make us wise, that you would equip us for every good work by your scriptures. And God, you know the future. We do not know. We don't know what triumphs and what struggles, what difficulties and what blessings lie ahead. So we entrust ourselves, our present and our future in your hands. Again, we give you thanks and glory for all your grace in the past. Now we pray, since you know the road ahead of us, will you give us what we need today and tomorrow and the next day? The wisdom that we need, the insight, the courage, the love that we need in order to walk with you faithfully and bear much fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have these four passages now from Acts to consider. And... I want to put these passages in a little bit of context um, in relation to the themes of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a book about the Holy Spirit working through the early church to help the word of Christ go from Jerusalem, where the church begins, to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world. 
So this is a book about the fact that God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit wants the whole world and every ethnic group to know about Jesus. God wants people from every tribe, tongue and nation to experience the joy and forgiveness and salvation that comes from trusting in Jesus, the son of God who died for our sins and rose again. And it's an incredible story of grace and power and redemption. And it's a story about God overcoming lots of obstacles including persecution from Romans, persecution from non-believing Jews who don't trust in Jesus, including uh, God's grace in the midst of a lot of failure and weakness on the part of the leaders of the early church and in a part of the, the congregations. It's a story about God overcoming the narrow mindedness and prejudice of people. Listen, this the early church, including the apostles, they're taking a long time to really get the fact that God intends for the message of Jesus to be for all peoples, not just for ethnic Israel. So in chapter 10, we find the first story of Peter, the apostle, really getting it. God gives Peter a vision three times to teach him. I love Gentiles. I love Gentiles. Do not call unclean what I have called clean. The gospel is for Gentiles. Now everybody say the word Gentiles. Gentiles just means people who are not ethnically Jewish. And Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. He's a Jew who came to save the Jews. But as the Messiah of Israel, he comes not only to save the Jews, but to save people from all nations who are going to be grafted into Israel, God's covenant community through faith in Jesus. But it takes the Jewish community a long time to really get that. So even after the Holy Spirit is poured out into the early church at Pentecost, Lots of people are converting and they're, they're people who speak a lot of language. But these are Jewish people, ethnically Jewish people who have spread out and learned other languages in the Roman Empire, then come back to Jerusalem. And then in, in chapter eight, uh, the gospel spread to Samaria. And then in chapter 10, there's this incredible moment where Peter um, goes after he's given a vision and preaches the gospel to Cornelius, a Roman soldier and a uh, Gentile and Cornelius and his whole household believe and the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. Peter goes back to Jerusalem and reports, hey, God is at work saving Gentiles. It's incredible. But up until this point, there has been no intentional concerted effort by the early church to reach the Gentiles. They're still kind of wrapping their minds around the fact that Gentiles should be included in this Christian community in a full and complete way. And there's a lot of Wrestling that they're going to have to do about that. But something incredible happens in Acts chapter 11. That all this changes a breakthrough moment where the Holy Spirit does this work where the church gets serious about participating in God's heart to bring salvation to all nations. So this is about God loving all nations. Everybody say all nations. When we're talking about Gentiles, we're talking about all nations. We're talking about every ethnic group, talking about every color, every language, every nationality. God's heart for all people. And the work starts in Antioch. So this city is the place where, where the movement really begins to spread out. Um, a few words about Antioch. Antioch's a big city. About 500,000 people, half a million people, which was huge by ancient standards. Third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, the capital of the Roman province of Syria. And this is a diverse cosmopolitan city, meaning this is a place where Eastern and Western cultures meet. It's a place where a lot of languages exist. 
Even before the Christians make it to Antioch, there's a thriving community of what we call Hellenistic Jews, meaning Jewish people who had scattered to this city and were now Greek speaking Jews worshiping God in synagogues. Um, But there was all kinds of other religions here, too, and all kinds of culture. This was a cultural center. It was also a commercial center, lay very close to a bunch of trade routes. So there's lots of business happening. It's a happening place, a diverse cultural and commercial center. And. So now the gospel is getting there and I want to start in in chapter 11 and then walk through all these passages and we're going to have to move really quickly. But I just want to make a handful of observations about the unusual grace of God that was poured out in this place in Antioch and then spend a couple moments reflecting on what we today might be able to learn from God's grace in Antioch. So first observation that I, I want to make is that. This the founding of the church in Antioch is a powerful example of the fact that God can take painful, difficult circumstances and redeem them. The founding church of this church is an example of that. I say that because of what we read in verse 19. Look at look at the verse with me. It says now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word of God to no one but the Jews. So this church is planted by a group of Jewish Christians who were in Jerusalem and then they were forced to leave by persecution. Do you see that they were scattered because of the persecution that arose after Stephen? Now, we could go back in the book of Acts and read about the killing of Stephen This incredible martyr who was stoned to death because of his witness to Jesus. And then if we read the first three verses of Mark uh, of Acts chapter eight, we would find that uh, Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee who hates the early Jesus movement, is overseeing now a systematic effort to stamp out and kill the Christian church before it gets off the ground. So uh, Acts 8, I think it's verse 3, says Saul was ravaging the church. That's strong language to say he's throwing people in jail. He's going after the leaders. He's systematically um, using violence, using uh, whatever means he can to crush the church. Now, that's not a situation of ease, friends. It's not a situation of comfort. That's a situation of serious pain. That's a situation of demonic attack. That's a situation in which many of these early Christians were probably thinking, where are you, Jesus? This movement was just getting off. Everything was going great. And now it's like your protection has been removed from us and we're going through all this pain. But in the pain, God had a purpose. And because of this pain and this persecution and this opposition, the church, which was really still becoming inwardly focused, there was lots of new Christians being reached. But these were all people in Jerusalem from a Jewish background. And it's really the pain of persecution that shakes the church out of its comfort zone. The people start scattering and folks who were persecuted by Saul of Tarsus scatter. And some of them reach to Antioch, but really they still haven't got it yet. Because they're they're preaching now among lots of cities in the Roman empires. But the text says they're still focusing on the Jews. But my next point is this. In chapter or in verse 20 of Acts chapter 11, we see that some Hellenistic Jews, meaning Jews who know the Greek language, who have adopted the Greek culture, are now the first ones who have made the decision 
to intentionally work at overcoming the ethnic cultural division between Jews and Gentiles to take the gospel to all peoples. Look at verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, meaning these are Jews living in diaspora. These are Greek culture Jews who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Now, you might circle that word Hellenists. That just means Greek culture people. Some of the sometimes the word is used in Acts to talk about Greek speaking Jews. But here it's talking about Gentiles. And it says some of the Greek speaking Jews, when they came to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, the, the Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. What's incredible about this is that these people aren't even named. Verse 20 tells the story of the first intentional, concerted, cross-cultural evangelism by a group of Christians and the founding of the multi-ethnic church and the people who do it are totally anonymous. Lost to history. Isn't that just like God? He takes... Unnamed people that the world doesn't even know who they are. Ordinary people like you and me. And he uses them to start a movement that would shake the whole world. In heaven, their names will be known. We'll find out there. But here on earth, we don't know. But these people, they're the first one who they, they get the message. God has been trying to say to the apostles and to the early church, this gospel is for all nations. And so they're like, all right, then let's start telling all the nations about Jesus. So they start doing it. First multi-ethnic church in history. God is demonstrating the power of the gospel of Jesus by reconciling people from all nations, not only to God, but also to one another. The peace and the collaborative spirit that we experience or that we read about in Antioch is an incredible marvel, um, given the history of this place. And that will become even uh, more Obvious as we continue to read. Next point that I want you to make is as these guys are doing this thing, the hand of the Lord is with them. Look at verse 21. It says, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So who's doing this work? God's doing the work. Everybody say God's doing the work. That's what we were talking about from Isaiah 26, 12. God has done for us all of our works. Now, God is doing some work through a few people who were faithful. How did these people get to have this incredible experience of being used by the Lord to see a lot of lives transformed? Pagan Gentile folks who were far from God, believing in Christ, having transformed lives. Well, they got to experience this because they very simply obeyed the word of the Lord that nobody else had obeyed yet. God had been saying, take the gospel to the nations and everybody's kind of slowly but surely taking obedient steps in that direction. And they said, let's just go for it. They're not apostles. They have no credentials. All they do is say, let's obey the revealed word of God. And because they obey the real revealed word of God, they find that the hand of the Lord is with them. Isn't that powerful? Ordinary people who said, and instead of asking, uh, Why should we do this thing? The apostles haven't done it yet. They say, why not obey the word of the Lord? Because they're willing to obey the word of the Lord. The hand of God is with them. And this movement begins to start. Now, Jerusalem hears about it. They want to check it out. And so they send somebody and thank God they send Barnabas. 
Because Barnabas, when you read about Barnabas throughout the book of Acts, you find Barnabas is like the biggest hearted, most generous, gracious man ever. As a matter of fact, his real name is Joseph. But Barnabas is a nickname that the apostles gave him, which means son of encouragement, because he's so encouraging. We first meet him in Acts chapter four. He's apparently a wealthy man, but he's incredibly generous. And as the church is growing um, in Jerusalem, this wealthy man sells a field, brings it to the apostles to, uh, so they can use the money um, to take care of poor Christians in the in the early movement here. And after there was a conversion of a guy named Saul of Tarsus. You remember him? Saul of Tarsus, persecutor of the Christians, murderer of Stephen. Trying to stamp out the Christian church. Well, this little thing happened where Paul's on a journey to persecute some more Christians and Jesus showed up and appeared to him. And Paul had a radical conversion. So Saul slash Paul now is beginning to preach the word of the Lord. And everybody is, of course, extremely nervous about this guy. But Barnabas is the one who shows up and takes Saul under his wing and says, hey, God's with him. Listen to what he's saying. Look at what God's doing. And now Barnabas gets sent to Antioch. Listen, I love James. I love the brother of our Lord. I love uh, the letter that he wrote, but I can't help thinking it's a good thing they sent Barnabas and not James to Antioch. Because James was a little bit slow to get on board with what God was doing among these nations. But look what happens when Barnabas comes. Um, verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He's just celebrating. Instead of being overly skeptical, he's rejoicing. Look, God's grace is bigger and broader and wider than we ever imagined. He's glad and he starts exhorting them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast, steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Now, the grace of God at Antioch in this incredible story gets even more incredible in verses 25 and 26, because we have this fledgling Christian movement, the first multi-ethnic church, the first concerted effort by a group of believers to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But there's all these believers and they're immature and they need to get uh, some help to disciple these Christians, to train them up for maturity. God does not want any of us to remain in immaturity. He wants a group of growing Christians, growing in wisdom, growing in holiness. So Barnabas thinks he he needs some help here and he goes to get some help. And guess who he goes to get? He goes to get Saul of Tarsus. And the, the text tells us that Saul slash Paul comes now. Barnabas brings him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. I want you to understand the incredible grace of this. This church was founded by people who fled Saul of Tarsus because he was a hypocritical, pharisaical guy being used by Satan to try to stamp out the church. They fled his persecution. And then they came all the way to Antioch to get away from the persecution. They told some people about Jesus. Those were the original church planters. But then some other people joined their group and started talking to the Gentiles about Jesus. And all of a sudden it just explodes and lots of people are coming to know Christ. And then guess who shows up now filled with the Holy Spirit and equipped as an apostle and starts teaching the guy they ran away from in the first place. What a redemption story. What a redemption story. And nobody gets into a fight. I mean, Luke is not afraid to tell us when a fight happens. He tells us about some fights as we read through the book of Acts. But here we have Jew and Gentile together. Those who fled persecution being led by the man who was persecuting them a few years ago. In one church 
Why? Because Jesus is Lord, because they worship the one who died for sinners and rose again, and because the Holy Spirit is at work with them as they simply obey the word of God. This is an incredible story. And as we read, God is breeding something incredible in this church. As the church is growing in maturity, God is giving them certain gifts and certain abilities. And in chapter 13, we find out that this is a church that is uh, being used by God to be the launching point of the mission to the rest of the world. Up until this point in Acts, Jerusalem was really the center of the early movement of disciples of Jesus. But from this point, chapter 13, through the rest of Acts, really the center becomes Antioch. They're the ones who are sending their home base for the Gentile mission. And at that time, like at our time, Jews are a tiny percentage of the population. And so the rest of the world is really being reached through a mission that was sent from Antioch. In chapter 13, we see a list of um, prophets and teachers, including not only rich, generous guy, Barnabas, extremely well-educated guy, Saul, uh, African guy named Simeon. Probably another Gentile, Lucius, that's a Roman name. Uh, Menean, here's a guy who grew up in political privilege, a childhood friend of Herod. This is the Herod during the time of Jesus that he grew up with, who was, you know, opposing Jesus and, and uh, overseeing that opposition to Christ. There's this incredible group of people, some from incredible wealth, political privilege, educational background, others who are Gentiles from all over the nations, who have been brought to this place that dwell together in love and unity that's centered on Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is doing an incredible ministry through, uh, through them. And then it's worth noting that these were people who learned to seek the face of God. That's what's happening in verse 2 of Acts 13. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. This is a place where the Holy Spirit speaks and moves dynamically. This is a place where the hand of the Lord is with his church. Now, God is sovereign. And in God's sovereign wisdom, he could choose to pour out blessing wherever he wants to and not pour it out wherever he wants to. But I think we should notice that in the scriptures, God doesn't generally pour out incredible blessing and grace when there's a group of people that aren't seeking his face and obeying him. And this is a group of people that they were the first to really take serious the word of the Lord to intentionally make a concerted effort to reach the Gentiles. And now they're devoting themselves to worship and fasting, um, presumably this they were probably doing this because they were seeking direction from God. And in the midst of that, we now hear that the Holy Spirit is at work among them. And the Holy Spirit sets apart Paul and Barnabas for a mission beyond Antioch. So something is brewing in Antioch that's going to go beyond Antioch. And the Holy Spirit sets apart these two men. Now, there's a few observations to make about this. First is... God tells the church in Antioch, I'm doing something special here, but it's not all about you and your city and your place. It's about my kingdom for all nations. The thing that I'm starting here needs to go everywhere. That's the heart of God. Get it? That's important. And I would suggest to you as I read the Bible that I think that's true of every congregation of Christians everywhere. Every congregation of Christians is a miracle. Every congregation of Christians is a group of people who rebelled against God and sin and earned judgment in hell. But by God's grace, 
They heard the gospel and trusted in Jesus Christ and were forgiven and reconciled to God. And every congregation of Christians does not exist for itself. Every congregation of Christians exists for the glory of God and for his kingdom. But it's very easy for us to forget that. One of the most tempting things that the church can can face, one of the greatest temptations we can face is the temptation to make it all about us. And when we start thinking that way, we stop taking risks and we stop making sacrifices. We start trying to conserve what we've already got. But that's just not the, what God's doing in the world right now. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you got to take up your cross and follow me. Love is about laying down our own lives and our own rights for others. So everybody turn to your neighbor, say, it's not about us. It's about Jesus and it's about what Jesus is doing among all nations. And when the Holy Spirit speaks here, the same thing that the Holy Spirit has been saying. Listen, Jesus said in Acts chapter one, I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit so that you could take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 10, Holy, the Holy Spirit sent Peter a vision three times. To the effect that the gospel is going to the Gentiles. Peter obeys to go see Cornelius, but we see no effort of the, of the Jewish church, the Jerusalem church, rather than sending out to the Gentiles. It's these unnamed Hellenistic Jews that take the first step of obedience to that word of the Lord. And now here the Holy Spirit speaks and we find a group of people who's not resisting. They're not dragging their feet. They're saying, all right, Lord. Now we need to understand that this was a great sacrifice for the church in Antioch. They're this big, growing, multi-ethnic church. And the Holy Spirit sets apart who? Paul and Barnabas. Friends, we need to understand they didn't have any more gifted leaders than Paul and Barnabas. I'm willing to guess. I'm willing to bet on that. Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament, right? Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles. Barnabas, this incredible leader. And yet this church was willing to say, you know, it's going to it's going to be a loss for us for them to not be with us. But we're so excited about the purposes of God that it's our joy to send. It's not about conserving. It's not about holding on to what we got. It's about releasing people to be a part of the kingdom of God. The other thing to say here is that while a couple of their top leaders were sent, everybody else needed to stay. Because God's not done with Antioch. Antioch throughout the book of Acts is going to continue to play a vital role. And throughout the next, say, thousand years of church history, Antioch is going to play a vital role. As we read through the pages of church history, this church is going to be a center of missions, a center of theology, a center of discipleship. God's going to use his people in this city. And so while some of them are sent and the Holy Spirit sets them apart for that work, most of them are called to stay to keep evangelizing their city. But to do so now as people who are growing in Christ in their context, evangelizing in their context and supporting the work of those who have been sent. So verses three and four of Acts chapter 13. Tell us that after fasting and praying. The church laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them off. They prayed, they fasted, they laid their hands up saying, Paul and Barnabas, we appoint you for this task. And look at this. This is cool. Verse three says the church sent them off. And then what does verse four say? 
They were sent out by the Holy Spirit. The church sent them off. They were sent out by the Holy Spirit. These are not mutually exclusive things. God is acting through the church as the church is obedient to the word of God and to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to the promptings of of God that he's he's doing in their community. Now, I'm not going to spend much time talking about the passages from chapter 14 and chapter 15. But they are here to be examples of something that we see throughout the rest of Acts is that the the church in Antioch didn't just send off Paul and Barnabas and then say, see you in heaven. This was not the end of this relationship. The relationship would continue for many years. So, uh, for example, chapter 14. Now, if you look at verse 26, it's talking about Paul and his team, Barnabas, they sailed to Antioch. Where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had they had been fulfilled. So Antioch is the place that sent them. Antioch is the place that commended them to the grace of God. God, you have set apart Paul and Barnabas for this work. Now we commend them to you. Please be gracious to them and bless their work and sent them out. So they go back to their sending church and give a report and everybody rejoices and gives glory to God. Verse 27 says when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And you can imagine that there was a lot of celebration in Antioch. Wouldn't this be fun to remember together as a church? Listen, we all prayed and sought God and fasted and then. God did this movement among us and it was hard for us to send Paul and Barnabas because we loved them so much and they were our leaders and they were our best, most gifted people. But now we rejoice when they come back because thousands have come to know the Lord because of their ministry. Verse 28 says they remain no little time with the disciples. They remain no little time. We're not told what they did, but we can use our imaginations that there was a lot of mutual strengthening going on. You better believe Paul and Barnabas are teaching and investing in the people in Antioch. They want this church to be strong. God's got a role for this church for centuries to come. And we can be sure that this was mutual ministry. Like Paul said to the Romans, we want to be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. This is a group of Christians who's full of grace in Antioch, undoubtedly praying for and encouraging the missionaries that they had sent and came back. In Acts chapter 15, we read about some growing conflict between the Jewish and Gentile background Christians uh, uh, about controversial matters. Should should Gentile Christians have to be circumcised and they need to obey the food laws that Moses gave us? And as the church is working through those conversations, um, they have a council at Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas are a part of that. And then they send the decision of the Jerusalem church to Antioch because the Antioch church has become the leader of Gentile Christianity. And look what happens in Acts chapter 15. It says, and when they were sent off, this is Paul and Barnabas and their associates, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. This is a letter from the Christian community in Jerusalem about their decisions to the effect that uh, Gentiles um, don't need to be keepers of every detail of the Mosaic law. And verse 31 says, and when they read had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they went off in peace. They were sent off in peace by the brothers uh, to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So once again, Paul and Barnabas have come back to Antioch. 
and spend ex- extended time with them. And we're going to see that pattern uh, throughout the book of Acts. Now, I want to step back for a second. These are stories of God's grace in Antioch that we're reading in the book of Acts. You may have noticed that we don't live in Antioch. Antioch is now in Turkey and it's now a ruin. Uh, We live in Oklahoma City. But we serve the same God. And I think the stories of God's grace in Antioch can be very um, instructive for us as we're trying to discern what it would look like for a Christ community church to be faithful and obedient as we walk into our future together as a congregation. And we've got a lot to learn from these folks and from God's dealings with them. So I want to finish today by just trying to draw out a few lessons. What can we learn from this? And the first thing that I want to say, Christ Community Church, is that we need to remember that our God is a God who redeems situations of pain and difficulty and failure. This church began with persecution. And it ended with persecuted and persecutors worshiping together with people from all nations and a church that was going to play a massive role in the history of humanity. It started with pain on the part of the persecuted. It started with sin on the part of Saul slash Paul. But God took what he intended for evil and used it for good and then forgave him and changed his life. That's a sign of grace. And then we also see a sign of grace that he worked in the hearts of the people he persecuted, that they would accept his leadership. God takes situations of pain and failure and redeems them. That's good news for us. Anybody had any pain in your life? What about failure? We all have incredible failures in our past. We all have incredible pain, but those do not disqualify us from playing a crucial role in the purposes of God. Because our God is a God who takes pain, he takes failure, he takes difficulty, he takes evil, and he's able by his sovereign wisdom and grace to use it for good. Second thing I want to say, friends, we can learn from this. God is at the work at work in the world, reconciling all nations to himself and to one another through Jesus. God is at work. We're not trying to start that effort. Do you hear this? We are not the ones who had the first idea that it would be good for lots of people to know God and to be reconciled to one another in South Oklahoma City. That idea only occurred to us because it's been God's on God's heart since before the foundation of the world. Do you understand? And God wants to reconcile lots of people from lots of different backgrounds to himself and to one another in Norman. And God wants to do that work in China. Martin, who we, we sent to China a few months ago, is back with us for a period of time. He's going to be sent again. God wants to do that work in Dubai. Where the belts are right now preparing to go. God wants to do that work in Cuba where many of the friends that we've encouraged and supported are ministering. God is in the business of reconciling people to himself and to one another through Jesus. So we don't have to start that and we don't have to feel this incredible pressure that gets on us. If we'll just be obedient to the revealed will of God that he gave us in his word, then we will find it doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. Doesn't mean we're always going to see massive success in short periods of time, but the hand of the Lord will be with us. All we have to do is be obedient. We're not trying to initiate this work. We're not trying to force it to go forward. What we're trying to do is open ourselves to join God in what he's already doing. 
And what we see at Antioch is a group of people who were willing to open themselves to what God was already doing and then to work hard and sacrifice in order to participate in it. Another lesson I think we need to learn from this story is, while I do not know the details of what God has for in store for us, we all need to be ready to send, ready to go, and ready to stay. We all need to be ready to send, ready to go, and ready to stay. Some of us need to be ready to go, because there are pockets of the world that need somebody to come preach Jesus and make disciples and bring the love of God. And I believe God wants to raise up leaders from this church. We've been praying it since before Christ Community Church was started. And some of us need to be ready to go. And that might be a difficult decision. That might take a lot of faith. That might take a willingness to step into difficulty in the midst of lots of criticism. I've never heard of any group of Christians being sent to do the work of God without being criticized and without facing opposition. So you need to be ready to go. But most of us, probably, like in Antioch, are going to be called to stay. Some of us, by the way, might get moved by circumstances outside of our control, much like the people that started this church. Others of us might be intentionally sinned. But probably for most of us, we're called to stay. And for those of us who stay, we're talking about a long-haul, deep investment in a place like the rest of the church did in Antioch. And their long-haul, deep investment in that place Caused deep roots to grow here. This place, which was the first multi-ethnic church, the first place where there was an intentional, concerted effort by a group of people to evangelize Gentiles, also became an anchor for the early church for centuries. I'm not prophesying that Christ Community Church is an anchor of the global church for centuries. I'm just saying we need to be ready to stay committed to the long haul for what God has here. And one of the things that will mean is being ready to send our best people. And then to pick up the slack. You think that when Paul and Barnabas left, there was not some slack to be picked up? It would take like 20 people to do the job of Paul in a local congregation, right? They had no one person that could do everything Barnabas did. Everybody had to be ready to step in and fill a void. But they were ready to do it, not only with their time, but also... If we wanted to be more detailed, we could say with their money, because from the very beginning, this church took up a collection to send back to struggling Christians in Jerusalem. So they were willing to sacrifice financially, sacrifice their time, sacrifice their effort to go if they were called to go, to stay if they were called to stay and to send. Because for, for them, it was not they were not dreaming about their life story. They were focused on the purposes of God and the story he was writing in the world. So the key factor was obedience. I'm going to be obedient to what Jesus has called me to do was their heart. And because of that, they got to be used of the Lord in incredible ways. As we're sending. We need to. I think we would be wise to be thinking about how we can maintain these kind of long, mutually long term, mutually strengthening relationships that Paul and Barnabas had with Antioch, meaning in a couple of weeks, when we call up to the front, those who are going down to Plant Hope Community Church and lay hands on them. Fasting and praying, we're going to I'm going to invite you to spend some time in fasting. We're going to pray as a congregation for these that we're sending out. We're going to lay hands on them and we're going to be excited, even though we're sending people who have been our friends. You know, those that we're sending have been long term servants, some of them who have contributed to the ministry in South Oklahoma City for years 
It's going to take a lot of effort on our part to fill in the gap, but we're excited to do it because we believe the Holy Spirit has done this work, which means we expect to hear stories of God's grace in Norman, and we expect to continue to hear stories of God's grace in this place. And as we do that, we're not just saying, see you in heaven. What we're saying is let's commit to a long-term relationship to support each other, to strengthen each other, so that God could use the unity of the Spirit forged between our our communities, in order to continue to advance his kingdom among the nations. I want to say to those who are staying, you have an incredibly important role. Sometimes to stay might feel like a little more humdrum than to go. It might feel a little discouraging because it means the week after you send everybody, there's less, a few less people on the team. And everybody's got to tighten their belts financially to make this thing work. And everybody's got to be willing to put in a little more effort just to maintain the same level of ministry. But for those who are staying friends, I just want to say, if we're like Antioch, if we just learn from the good example of these saints, they were held open hands and say, Lord, here we are. We want to be obedient to you. Do what you've called us to do. And history tells us not only that their obedience to sin was blessed by God, but that this church was going to be used by God to shake the world. And God, God was faithful to take care of that church. So those of you who stay and are committing for the long haul, this is an incredibly noble, important, glorious work. And we need you. Um, and finally, I want to say this. My last thought for today. Lessons that we can learn from God's grace and the story of Antioch is this. Though there is a lot of sacrifice, a lot of giving, a lot of generosity, a lot of work in this story. We learn from this story that when we are willing to join God in what he's doing, the blessings far outweigh the sacrifices. When we are willing to join God in what he is doing, instead of trying to get God on our agenda then the blessings we will experience far outweigh any sacrifices that we would be able to make. Friends, let me tell you, those who were sent from Antioch and those who remained in Antioch enjoyed the presence of Jesus Christ. These people experienced the dynamic leadership and empowerment of the Holy Spirit in historic ways. These people got to participate in an incredible move of God that impacted the lives of thousands during their lifetime and billions after their lifetime. Do you, do you consider this? The church in Antioch not only got to see probably hundreds of converts in Antioch and certainly thousands of converts through the ministry of the missionaries they sent out, but the churches that were planted by the church in Antioch became the launching points for the global Christian movement. There are roughly two billion people in the church today, today who heard the gospel because of the spiritual legacy of Antioch. What a tremendous opportunity. What a gift. And these people, I skipped over this fact, but did you catch it? They received the honor of being the first to be called Christians, Christians, Christ people. In Antioch, apparently, the enemies of the Christian movement first recognized this wasn't just a sect of Judaism. This was something that was explosive, that was big, and that was moving beyond the synagogue. synagogue and said, those are the Christ people. And praise God, the name has stuck. And we're still the Jesus people today. So, as we walk into the future today, uh, I don't know what, what God has in store for us. 
except to say this. God has been gracious to us in our past. He has done all our works for us. So we could say with confidence, he has ordained shalom for us in the future. And if we're open to the grace of God, willing to sacrifice, willing to give, willing to go, willing to stay, willing to sin, then our God is going to be gracious. He's going to pour out life and love for us. And it's going to be a a fun ride. It's going to be joy together to experience his goodness so that seven years from now, whether we're all dead in heaven, (laughs) rejoicing in the presence of Christ, or whether we're having a 14-year anniversary, seven-year anniversary of Hope Community Church, whatever the case is, we're going to be able to say, God is good. Look at what he's done for us. Look at what he's done for us. And I, I don't want to do anything to stop that. I don't want to do anything to get in the way of that. I just want to be open to what the Spirit of God might do. I want to end with prayer, and I want to invite you to do a thing with me, if you'd be willing, to take a physical posture of openness. I can only do it with one hand because I'm holding a microphone right now, but you could do it with both hands. And as we pray, I just want to invite you to open up your hands like this. This is a posture saying, I'm ready to receive grace from God, and I'm not holding on to my plan. I'm not holding on to my life. I'm not addicted to conserving what I already think I have. I'm ready to open everything to Jesus to receive grace and strength from God as we walk forward together. If you hold your hands in that way, I want to be silent for a moment that you can pray. And I want to lead us in a prayer together. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. God, we just acknowledge your unique majesty and power and love. And we open ourselves to you. The history of your dealings with Israel and with the church and with us. Give us ample reason to trust your promises. So, Lord, every one of us, I just pray that you do a work wherever there's stuff in our lives that we're trying to cling to, that you would help us to open our fingers. To be open to your leadership and your guidance. Would you give us the wisdom, the courage, the tenacity the perseverance, the joy that we need to walk in the path that you have prepared for us. And Lord, I'm praying that in Oklahoma City and in Norman and in all the other places that you might want to send people from this church, Jesus would be exalted. Sinners would find peace with God. And mature disciples of Jesus would be raised up who will be trophies of your grace who bring you glory during their lifetime and trophies of your grace for all eternity. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.